Welcome to the new Cat Chat, brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, the wonderful private company owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian whose personal mission is to formulate litters that keep cats using the litter box, which keeps them in their loving homes. I'm Tracy Hotchner, the author of The Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. My mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire cat lovers like you to give their kitty cats the best possible life in nutrition, affection, and environmental enrichment. With Dr. Elsie's support, The Cat Chat Show brings you interviews with cat authors and experts, some old favorites, some new conversations, so you can better understand and appreciate your own feline family members. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of My Cat Film Festival, short films from around the world that celebrate kitty cats. Here's some exciting news. Thanks to Dr. Elsie's, you can now see streaming versions of the Cat Film Festival for free on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. Hope you enjoy listening and watching. Rita Mae Brown, welcome back to the show. A treat, as always, to grab you back from the barn, which is where you'd rather be, right? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm talking to you, so I'm happy. Well, you're so nice to say that. Um, everyone knows or should know by now that I don't pre-interview people and I don't ever have a list of questions, but I had the treat because you have telephonic challenges of getting to talk to you a little a couple of days ago. And... Of course, I want to talk about A Hiss Before Dying. It's yet another super cool book, and we'll talk about that first. But we also went into some really fascinating areas of interest to you and to me, areas to do with history and women and and the history of women and the history of sexual choices and things that in some way are part of the history part of A Hiss Before Dying. You view yourself, I think, as a historian, right? Someone who adores the classics and history? Yeah, I double major, majored in college classics and, and English. And uh, it has served me well all my life. And I guess one of the things that is really lacking in modern education and therefore in modern sensibility is a sense of history. And I think one of the beauty of your books Besides the fact that they have all these characters that are also many of them are four legged and and have great conversations and great sensibilities. And we'll talk about that is the sense of history and at least the more recent of your Sneaky Pie Brown mysteries and and the dog series. They go between the 1780s and current time and slaves and free men and free slaves and, and the sense of history is right down to little details of slave, you know, like passes where they're allowed to go from place to place, how the world worked. Do you feel as someone who loves history and appreciates it and, and inserts it so, so viscerally into your books that it's a great loss in modern education and society that we really don't know our own history, much less anybody else's? Tracy, it's not only a loss, it's dangerous. The way is clear for a demagogue. If we don't know who we are, if we don't know our Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, and we don't know what people did who came before us, we're suckers for anybody who lies to us. That is the truth, and I think something that those of you listening with a respect and admiration for Rita May's work, starting with Ruby Fruit Jungle, right through all of these books that are entertainments but have important messages to us about who we are and where we came from, I hope that it gives everybody the goosebumps it gives me to realize that in 
in modern culture on television, the depiction of the, the nearness to demagoguery that exists in America, and maybe in England, and maybe in Germany, and who can say, certainly Syria, Egypt, all these places, we have to wake up. You have an interesting, and, and I'd like you to talk about that, I'm just sort of opening the door for you, but you also have a whole nother aspect to your uh, accomplishments, was that you're a judge for the Emmys. How did that yes, happen? I am. Because you're about to watch <laughs> or binge watch shows like... Uh, I don't know, Designated Survivor, House of Cards, Homeland, Scandal, shows all quite different in their way, but as the New York Times recently did a piece in which many of the the writers and showrunners of those shows talk about fact and fiction, these are all very important moments in time for us to say, oh, it's entertaining, but Jesus, it's also scary as can be. Well, it is. And uh, the, the way I, I became a judge is the way most of us do in Hollywood. If, if you've had shows nominated for Emmys and uh, you become a member of the ca- Academy, you have oh, to I sort see. of jump a couple of hoops. Then you, uh, in the old days, you were asked to be a judge and you'd had to fly out and you were in a room in a locked room. So wow. you could never, <laughs> yeah, so you couldn't tell anybody what was happening inside. Now they send it to you and you, and you, are able to get to them via computer or whatever and tell them what you're voting for. But what I find so remarkable <clears throat> is um, the level of quality, the willingness to engage difficult themes. Yes. And I, I, I feel that the only way people are even getting a little bit of our history is off of cable. You think, oh, you mean things like the Oliver Stone series or even the history channel well, in that way? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or the or the Pope, the young Pope, stuff like right. that. They right. they enter a world that they could enter had they if they had a, an education, if they had a true classics education, a humanities education, which of course is all now being thrown out. Um, they would know these things, but they don't. You know, like the musical 1776. It can yes. seem like an an interesting pastime, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. Very. You know, let's just go back for a minute. You say, of course, it's being thrown out until we spoke off the air. I didn't know that the venerable Harvard has now said, oh, foo on the classics, never mind all that rubbish. Is, is that actually what they're doing as they educate supposedly the brightest of the bright? Well, some, some, the, the head of the Department of English is saying, well, well, no, we're, we're not really doing that, but we're, we're allowing people to get a degree in so-called marginalized peoples. Look, there's only one way to get an English degree, and you've got to go back and you better damn well start with Beowulf. And, we, and, and I took a whole course on Beowulf, as a matter of fact. It's one of the few things that I remember, but I didn't even understand why I was spending a whole semester on Beowulf, because then it's not in a context with the rest of your education. Right. But, but if it is, and you read that, you realize the bitterness and the fear uh, at the base of our culture, because uh-huh. that's Anglo-Saxon. And then the, the, the Latin comes in in 1066 when Harold gets the arrow in the eye, and these two completely opposing languages, not just in their world experience, but in their structure, become one language. We are the only language in the world that basically is fire and ice together. Ooh, interesting. The English language, that would be. Oh, my God. And, and I look at these people in English departments. I don't care where it is. And I want to say, you don't even know your own tool. Teach the language. Yes. And, and do you think this is, 
if we're talking in a historical context of sort of going down the drain educationally in America, which I think everybody would agree. It doesn't matter if you're if you're at the top of the feeding chain or somewhere below it. It's an attitude towards history being not that important, the classics, what came before, learning from our elders, learning from our past mistakes or being forced to repeat it. Do you think that this is all of a piece and, and that somehow the political arena, can, that these, these dangerous situations can be evolving because we are so ignorant? I do very much. And a, a thing that just strikes terror in my heart is they remove civics from high school. Is that now, a fact? Yeah, yeah, it is. A lot of states no longer require students to have civics, which means if you're not one of those who is going to go on to college, you, you still know how to work the system. Civics tells you what, the civic, what our system is and where you can go, what you can do, how you can protest, et cetera, et cetera. They don't get any of that anymore. So we are becoming more and more passive because we don't even know what is allowed to us via our rights. And you so, look at this and you... So when go, they have, like, like Occupy, and, and to those of us, you and I went to NYU at about the same time, the sort of late 60s, early 70s. In those days, protests, and, and we'll get into the sexual revolution in a minute as well, in terms of protests, but protests were considered fairly regular and normal. Now you have Occupy and the, at least obviously the downtown world viewed these people as should be swept out to sea. But the rest of us that may not have been there, we saw them as oddities instead of people that were doing social disruption in a good way, right? Right. We saw it as part of our citizenry. You right. know, you're young and, and you're passionate. And yes. yes, of course, you're going to go over the top. That's what you do. But that's part of it. Yes. That's what makes America, America. And to demonize these people, whether they're on the left or the right, is to take away part of the joy of being young. Yes, and the fact that a voice is part of, theoretically, a democracy. And there aren't yeah, people to be shut up and, and pushed away with a bulldozer, as if it were no. a square or a square in another country. But that's the way they were, they were being viewed by, let's say, your older Americans, your more middle-class Americans, right? Just, just upstarts yeah. and troublemakers and unwashed, dirty folks. Yes, clearly they've forgotten their youth. <laughs> you yeah, or, yeah. Because the people that are middle-aged and middle-class now must have remembered that we actually, as a nation, I think, and I'm no historian, you are, we did bring the Vietnam War to a close by protesting in the streets. Did we not? We did. We did, and we worked the system. And ultimately, there were senators and representatives who understand, understood, and then we, we did have a true front. We did have a way to, to question the administration at the time. And we did end that war. And remember, we're the generation that saw LBJ sign the Civil Rights Act, sign the That's Voting Rights Act. I mean, those were incredible it moments. It wasn't that long ago. That's what's almost the most chilling. I mean, we, we read a book like A Hiss Before Dying, and we're delighted, and it's a great tale. I fell into it like like into Alice in Wonderland, a whole nother universe, and the animals talking, and oh, wait, oh, I'm in 1786 now. Okay, wait, oh, I'm in 2016. Okay. And it was just great. I mean, it's, it's a magic carpet ride to thoughts and ideas about animals and society and people. And yes, there's a murder mystery, but it's really about the way people treat each other and look at the world and nature and animals. And... There's, there's just this terrible lack 
in general of seeing things in that context. I mean, the fact that there's Holocaust deniers, the fact that, yeah, that's that civil rights, I mean, you have slaves in here and we, we read about in a very genuine way how they lived and how they lived with white people and how people of the plantation, the little black and white children played together when they were young. I mean, things that I would never have known, that they were, they were playmates. You know what? I have sort of reached my limit of black folks always being presented as victims. They were survivors. They were yep. strong. They were resourceful. Yep. And I have nothing but admiration. How did we get Maggie Walker, who started the bank right after the war between the states or, or the Civil War, whatever you want to call it, Madam C.J. Walker, Booker T. Washington, the people who came out of that background and gave every single American something fabulous? And yeah. I look at this and I'm saying, these aren't victims. These are victors. Uh, yes, and against the system which continued, uh, at least in some case, until the 60s or, you know, the Lovings who weren't allowed to marry. This is such recent. This is very recent history. We've all lived it, it through is. it. Well, what's fun for me was going back to 1786, and you see people living side by side in in major inequality. But people find a way to live. They find a way to, you know, uh, have some power. But what was the reason I chose the year, and we'll stick with it throughout the series now, each year succeeding, is it's when we fell apart. It's when Uh. every state could print their own money. Oh, yeah, you had something incredible in there about the post office. Talk about history, how annoying and irritating the U.S. post office was that people paid when the letter arrived to them, but that the British who had the Royal Post actually had a reliable mail service. I mean, things like that are riveting. So tell about that a little bit. That was a a big eye opener (laughs) for me. Our, our postal service was a disaster up until the early 1800s. So if you wrote me a five-page letter, I would have to pay for every page. So people tried, <laughs> they tried to, to be very succinct if they could. And by the way, our literacy rate was higher during the Revolutionary War than it is now. Oh. How's that for an unpleasant statistic? Whoa. Yeah. But um, so there was all this anger and people didn't want to pay. So you would hand the letter to somebody going, you know, maybe to the next date. And you say, would you give this to so-and-so? So months later, the letter would actually oh get into the person's hands. And, and it, was was almost so- like, it was almost like sending a telegram. To, you try to keep it as few letters and words as possible to save money. Right. Or throwing a bottle in the ocean and hoping it gets oh to the other goodness. side. But what was so crazy was the Articles of Confederation, if you read them, and of course I have, they make perfect sense when your fear is a king. And we had just defeated a king. So this, this was not as crazy as it now looks to us today. But every state could print its own money. Well, North Carolina, poor North Carolina, still screws up, doesn't it? They, they had no printing presses. No printing presses oh, at all. So they wrote the money out. No kidding. Yeah, it was called North Carolina Script. And, it must uh, be worth that's a all... fortune now if any of it survived to a, it to, to a collector, right? Well, yeah, and every state set its own values. So a Virginia dollar might not be the same as a Connecticut dollar. Oh, my dollar. goodness. Can you, you know, imagine? No, and it's just amazing. It's just not that long ago. I, I, think, that, and I think that to go back to the, to the topic of history and how fast things have happened, we now have doctors, schools, articles, books, things on 60 Minutes about transgender children of four and six and eight years old, and it was only in the late 60s that 
you found yourself in a in a strange situation as I guess one could call you a leader of some part of the gay movement where NYU lost I think you told me a million dollars in donors because of Columbia. some issue around Columbia. Yeah, we, they, we started the Students Homophile League. I went up from NYU and they lost a million dollars in a couple of weeks and the only reason uh, they didn't lose more because of us uh, was uh, the Columbia riots took place a couple weeks later and that just that just you know the, the media just fed on that for days but luckily New York University did not have riots. New York University was actually smart enough to learn from Columbia's stupidity. Sorry to dump on Columbia, right, but they right. were really pretty stupid. <clears throat> and um, I'm not saying it was easy. Right. I'm not saying they were welcoming, but they were much smarter about keeping the peace. Whether it was anti-war demonstrators or people wanting some kind of decent rights for, for gay people. You know, it was an interesting time. Well, you and I were there at the same time. I mean, we yeah. had Blue Mattrell, one of the greatest Greek professors ever. She has, if you, she died in 1996. And if you look up on the Google, you will see her obituaries, a, a complete page in The Economist, The New wow. York Times. Oh, I mean, she was extraordinary. But, and uh, Larissa, Larissa Bonfante Warren, who, who became a very famous Latin professor, whose work is used a great deal by other people. Um, I think she's probably in her 80s now. She's still with us. Uh, uh, I, I think Milton Friedman was at NYU. Yeah. There was, there was, Irving yeah. Crystal, a lot of like, a yeah. lot of even conservative and more right-wing political thinkers. And they pushed us. Yeah. I mean, but we but in terms really... of rights and in terms of standing up for rights and, and, and that whole topic... I mean, Ruby Fruit Jungle was a shocker at the time, and seven million copies later, I guess there were enough people interested on either side of the fence that this, <laughs> think... this story came across and continues to come across. But th these things happening in such a short amount of time, just a few decades, just shows how is... fast history is zooming forwards. Well, it does, Tracy, but you're in the middle of it, and you're one of the people behind it because you're in the media. And we now have a media that is much broader than anything prior. Even World War II, all we had were the newsreels. That's um, right. And a lot of that was but, propaganda. They really didn't have free reign to say or do what they wanted. Is that right? Well, I think the first, uh, uh, what do I want to say, casualty in any war is the truth. Oh, my Oh, listen to that. There's, 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 you know, something that deserves a moment of dead air and a pause. The first <laughs> casualty is truth. Ay, caramba. Well, what do we, what do we make of, I mean, are, now that your next book is, is Crazy Like a Fox, and it's coming out in the fall of 2017, does anything about the current political situation bring to bear on a mystery or dogs or cats being part of people's lives? Do they comment on any of it? Or, or do you steer a bit clear of contemporary history? Um, Crazy Like a Fox doesn't have that much in it. It, it actually has a, Can a Canadian protagonist, which is sort of fun well, for that's me. That's interesting. Maybe that's where we all need to go, a bit north. You know, people they have been uncommonly right. wise. They have, right? How do they avoid the, 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 well, because they're Canadian at the end of the day and we're crazy flamboyant expectations, right? You know, they have some great writers up there. Oh, my God. Yes. And, and it's taken us a while to appreciate it because we've always sort of had a, a superior attitude or we've just ignored 
You know, you've got, of course, Margaret Atwood. You've got Louise Penny. You've got, uh, I mean, some people who passed away in the last couple decades that were remarkable. And we're finally waking up to the fact that, you know what, maybe they have something to teach us. Well, Handmaid's Tale, there you are going to be the Emmy judge. I understand it's it's been filmed or it's going to come out soon as a limited series, a Netflixy Amazon kind of thing. So I thought, well, I better read it, darn it, before I see it, because otherwise it'll be too late. And I should have already read it. And so I'm listening to Claire Danes reading it as an audible, which is a, a, a joy and pleasure beyond description. And there you have a novel written decades ago, not unlike 1984, which presages the fact that that it only just exactly what you said in the beginning of the conversation if we if we become passive and inert and we don't stand up and we don't speak out we can be trampled and that book is about women becoming chattel of every kind and the Mm -hmm. whole society little by little and you know spoiler alert for the end of homeland i think everyone but you has seen it because you're going to see it all at once it's like watch out guys do not just go oh well and then go to whole foods we have to speak up we have to speak up about things that smell wrong and and people who act wrong it is a dangerous time we always think as americans that we're it's always going to be the land of the free and the home of the brave well depends you started out by saying a demagogue it it can happen it's happened in many places in the universe right it is and there are so many incredible women writers now forcing us to look at things in a new way. I mean, Dame Philippa Gregory, writing yes. about the War of the Roses. Yes. I mean, this is extraordinary. And, and true historians will look down their nose at it. But boy, is she doing us a service by I, asking we, us to look at this period in a new way. And, and, and always with the detail that you have in your books, all the little details about clothes and food and habits. And now that's been filmed as well. But people should read, if at all possible. You know, reading is... I mean, just great stuff. There's, there was just a book just out now about uh, Luther by a professor, that I think the first professor of religion, at, who's a woman at Oxford, and I think her, name, her last name is Roper. It may be Lyman Roper. I mean, women, I mean, I'm not saying we're, we're turning history upside down, but we're looking at it from a different angle, and it's so incredibly valuable. But that would be true of anybody coming from a different place. I mean, who is to I, say... I mean, I think that's why Oscar Wilde is so interesting, because he lived a lie, and and then he couldn't stand it anymore, and he got he got cocky. Interesting. You know, you don't take on you don't take on the Marcus of Queensberry and think you're going to win because you're famous. Um, and he paid for it. But if you really look, was at was that his like work, Truman Capote? Is that what Truman Capote did in his yeah yeah well, he, he, yeah look look what he did was yeah and then he was what, what was that prayer? Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, you be, you be careful, the people in power that you, that you try to, to mock, right? Well, they trusted him. Right. I mean, he, he betrayed the trust of those women. And, uh, and, and I, I mean, I feel a writer should be able to write whatever they want, but, but I thought that was low. Um, it would be but, like, I, I was good friends wait. with Faulkner. Oh, go ahead. No, you're right about the analogy with Oscar Wilde and, and people that, uh, writers who overstep in some way, and yet they're, they're supposed to be the truth tellers, right? Yeah, but you can do it, I think, without betraying your friends or people that have been good to you. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You were going to say something when I when I spoke. Oh, um, just that somebody that I knew for years was was Jill Summers, who was William Faulkner's daughter, and um, occasionally she would have me into the 
the den, and uh, uh, there was a beautiful portrait of her father over the fireplace. And his last job was being a professor at UVA. I think he died in 62. But everybody was a fox hunter. He was a fox hunter. I'm a fox hunter. She was a fox hunter. And she would talk about her father. I will never, ever write a word of what she told me. Good for you. Good for you, and, and I'm, glad, I'm glad if she doesn't either. I mean, it's really fine. Some things don't have to be told. But in wrapping up, because we've used up about a quarter of the time I wish we had together, I will say that you are a truth teller, have always been, that your books should all be read and that you should be viewed as a dame. We should give out a damehood to <laughs> Americans who do what you do. It's important. Listen to what Rita Mae says. Read her books, but but follow her motto, Okay. So thank you for being here, Rita May. Keep on writing and keep on being a rabble rouser and a disruptor and a flag waver and a troublemaker. We, we all need to do more of that, right? Well, what my mama said, make hell with what you have. <laughs> and you are. And bless you for that. Enjoy all of your horses and dogs and cats in your wonderful home in Virginia. And we will all enjoy all of that through you in a hiss before dying. Thank you so much, Rita May. Thank you, Tracy. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has deepened your understanding and affection for cats everywhere. It's been brought to you by Dr. Elsie's, which has broken new ground by creating a healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, which is inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. So your cat's appetite is satisfied longer without compromising her health. This is the first dry cat food I believe can be a healthy choice if you want to feed dry food to your cat, even as part of her diet. Although I recommend that canned food should always be your cat's primary diet. Feel free to reach out to me with questions or comments to radiopetlady at gmail.com. Now pop over to Amazon Prime or Tubi TV where you can watch streaming versions of the Cat Film Festival for free. Also thanks to Dr. Elsie's.